Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we want to look at the first two verses of the chapter. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Then it names five people, starts with Barnabas and ends with Saul. Verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Please notice verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Folks, there are atmospheres, there are things that we can do to create an atmosphere for the Holy Ghost to speak. And the Bible calls that ministering to the Lord. You know, a lot of things that, um, that take place in churches nowadays has more to do with ministering to the people than it does ministering to the Lord. And as a result, the atmosphere... Which, in which the Holy Ghost speaks is only created by ministering to the Lord. So there's a lot of things that God's not able to do that he would want to do. I don't believe God, well, let me say it this way. I don't believe that we should have to beg God to speak. Do you? I don't think there's anything about the things that have been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus and the relationship that we now have because of the sacrifice of Jesus I don't believe there ought to be anything that we beg God into doing. Let's face it, if God hadn't wanted to do it, Jesus wouldn't have purchased it for us. If God didn't want a relationship with us where we, he, where we could hear his voice and he could communicate directly with us regularly, frequently, continually, then why did Jesus pay the price? The whole purpose for Jesus dying for our sins, the whole purpose for Jesus taking stripes on his back to bring healing to our bodies and taking the chastisement of our peace upon him so that we could be provided for and walk in abundance here in this life. The whole purpose for that is so that God could live on the inside of us. That's what changed. That's what happened when Adam and Eve fell. God moved out. Their spirits were no longer alive to God. They were ruled and dominated by spiritual death. And the definition of spiritual death, folks, is not like we usually think of the word death. For us, death means the cessation of existence. But very rarely is death ever spoken of in the Scripture that way. Spiritual death is being separated from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God was no longer present from within them. Adam's life came as a result of God breathing into them the breath of life. He breathed into them himself. He breathed into them his own spirit. They became a living soul. They became alive because God's life was in them. Well, that's what Jesus came to restore. Thank God he did. But what should that restoration be for us? What should that reuniting with God and having the presence of God on the inside of us, what should that do for us if not restore us to a place where we can have fellowship with him, where we can hear his voice and where he can freely speak to us? That's the whole point. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said. Now, we could talk about the ministry of Paul. We could talk about what happened as they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost. But the important thing that I want you to see, at least in this service, the important thing I want you to see is when they ministered to the Lord, ministered to the Lord, that's when the Holy Ghost spoke. Folks, the Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 3, that God inhabits the praises of his people. He inhabits the praises of his people. Now, I want you to look at a couple other scriptures with me. Look first with me to, to Philippians chapter 4. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. We'll go ahead and read the next two verses to go along with it. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Notice again in verse 6, be careful for nothing. Another translation says, don't be anxious about anything. Well, if you're careful for nothing, that means you're carefree. That means you're carefree. Now, I want you to see that what Paul is trying to tell us and what he's trying to communicate to the church is that there should never be a place where we become desperate. So oftentimes, people that uh, find out, whether it's through the TV ministry or whether it's through personal contact, friends or whatever, people find out that we have a healing school and come to us as a last resort in many cases. Well, last resort, desperation type situations rarely work out the way they want them to. And in many cases, when they find out, even though they're in critical condition, when they find out that it's not going to work instantly the way that they hoped, they give up and they turn loose. Well, that never helps anybody. So notice where it talks about be careful for nothing, be carefree, don't be anxious or fretful about anything. Notice what he says to do instead. In other words, these are the steps that will keep you carefree. Now, becoming carefree is a choice. It's a decision you have to make. But once you make the decision, the Bible gives you instructions on how you can do it. Notice again in verse 6, be careful for nothing or be carefree. But in everything, instead of worrying, in other words, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now notice how he says that. Prayers, supplications, and thanksgivings. Prayer is just communication with God. The word that's used here for prayer just simply means communication with God. We think of prayer as being a formal thing, or many people do at least. Think of prayer as being a formal thing, but you can pray all day long just talking to God. Prayer is just simply communicating with God. Now, supplication is a little different. Supplication, the word supplication itself, denotes a little more effort, strenuous effort. It's laying hold of your rights and privileges in the name of Jesus. But there are some things that, that the simple prayer of faith, the one-time prayer of faith, won't work for. Now, you should always pray in faith, believing that God hears you and cares about you. But not everything is the prayer of faith. James chapter 5, verse 14, when it's talking about, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, and let them, the elders, pray over them, the sick, in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, in the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. In that place and in that condition, that's where we can lay hold of what Jesus purchased for us. But when it comes to things like direction for your life, things that aren't spelled out precisely or definitively in the Scripture. Those are things that you're going to have to pray on a little bit harder. Now, harder by, by the word harder, I mean simply you're going to have to go into it with the understanding that you may not get an instant answer but not turn loose of the things that you're praying. Continue 
to petition the Lord until you're sure that you know what he wants you to do. But then it says in thanksgiving too. So in other words, we should be able to pray and communicate with God in a variety of ways, in a variety of situations, any situation really. And there are other things that we're going to have to supplicate with or for. There are things that we're going to have to dig in and not turn loose of. But then an equal share or an equal part of our prayer life should be giving thanks too. See, that all has to do with making requests. Now, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the prayer of faith should always end in in thanksgiving. Somebody said the prayer of faith should end in the glad phrase or phrases of giving thanks to the Lord. In other words, if you believe God's heard you, there's no reason not to praise him for the answer, even though you don't see it yet. But there are other times that we should pray and give thanks in like similar in similar situations or in like manner. Look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, I exhort thee therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. Then he identifies the all men he's talking about. For kings and all that are in authority. Now the purpose for praying for kings and all that are in authority is so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But then notice verse 4, I think it is. For God would have, or it's the will of God that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if he's talking about people being saved, then part of that praying for people is going to be the unsaved. Saved people don't get saved. The unsaved do, though. And notice when he starts talking about people outside the church, he adds a different kind of prayer. The original three in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 are there. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. But he adds intercession. Now, the simple difference or the reason that intercession is placed there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that to intercede means to stand in the gap. What that means is there's a separation that we can enter into in prayer. Two, Two parties that are separated, the unsaved from God. We can step in the middle and make intercession and join those two together. You know where the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. A lot of people think that intercession in that case means prayer. Well, folks, if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father praying, then that means the work wasn't finished on the cross. That means there was something left to be done. Thank God that's not true. Thank God everything was accomplished on the cross. So what does it mean that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us? He's seated at the right hand of God and the very fact that he is seated at the right hand of God is proof that he's joined us together with our Heavenly Father. See folks, Jesus is not having to pray so that you'll make it through. You make it through by the gifts, the spiritual gifts and weapons that he's made available to you like the Word of God and the name of Jesus. So notice the two lists again. They're similar in the fact that they contain the same three things for the believer, prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, and then intercession is added for the unsaved. That's what our prayer life ought to look like. Our prayer life should look like what Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Communication with God, laying hold on the blessings of God through supplication, giving thanks And then as the Lord prompts us to, to intercede for all people that are outside of his family. 
I heard Brother Hagin say one time, this has been probably 30 years ago, but I heard Brother Hagin say something one time that just floored me. I knew a lot less then than I know now. Don't claim to know a lot now, but at least I found out a few things along the way. But he said this. He said if most people, most Christians, if they would just stop praying and start praising God, their prayers would be answered. Now, I guess the reason that shocked me is I thought there must be a 25-step process for people to go through to get to the place where they walk in fellowship with God so that their prayers are answered. But God doesn't make it hard for, for anybody in any respect. The keeping of God's commandments are the easiest thing in the world to do. It takes commitment. It takes dedication. But he doesn't put some onerous burden on us in any way, including in prayer. Now, what, did Paul know what he was talking about? In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't fret about anything. In other words, be carefree. And instead of worrying through prayer, supplication, and thanksgivings, let your request be made known unto God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Let's see if he knew what he was talking about. Acts chapter 16. I want to read from, in verse 12, Acts chapter 16, verse 12, it tells us about his journeys. It says, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So the next thing he's going to tell us about are things that happened in the city of Philippi. Now, the letter written to the Philippians is several years later, many years later, when Paul writes back to these same people. So the things that the book of Acts tells us in Acts chapter 16 about the occurrences and the events that took place in Philippi, the people that Paul wrote the letters to know about them, those things. They know about when he was there before. Certainly people have come into the family of God and been saved since the time that he left. But the original people that witnessed all these things are still there and part of the group that he's writing to. So Acts chapter 16, it tells us about how they cast the devil out of a little girl that was telling fortunes and making money for her master. She was a little slave girl. And it tells us in verse 22. The multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates ran off their clothes. And commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them. They cast them into prison. Charging the jailer to keep, safe, keep them safely. Their master stirred up the crowd. The, the ones that owned this little slave girl. Stirred the crowd up. Because they had lost their income. When the devil was cast out of this little girl. So they brought false accusations, put them in prison, had them beaten. Verse 24, who, talking about the jailer, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. He's trying to make sure they can't get away. He's hobbled them up in such a way that they can't get loose. Verse 25, and at midnight, now I believe this really was the midnight hour, but it could be symbolic of the midnight hour in any crisis the darkest hour the the point of no return so to speak the critical point and at midnight paul and silas prayed and sang praises unto god and the prisoners heard them notice what they knew to do when you were in trouble they prayed but they didn't just pray i think a lot of people would have prayed and whined all night long about the injustice being done to them they haven't done anything wrong they cast the devil out of one little girl, set her free. 
And here they find themselves in jail in the most difficult of situations. Their backs are bleeding. They've been mistreated by the people in the street and even the magistrates, the city rulers. Now, when it says uh, we read in verse 12, we start reading in verse 12 where it talks about Philippi being a colony. That word colony means a place where the legionnaires lived. It means a veteran's home. Rome would set apart cities for the retiring military personnel. These are people, these are cities that were established as outposts for the Roman Empire. And so they wanted to populate these cities with soldiers. So after soldiers would retire from battle or retire from their service, fulfill whatever service they had, and I don't know what the terms of that was. The Roman authorities would place them in some of these outpost cities. That's what Philippi was. So that's got to be a part of the crowd that they're stirring up against Paul and Silas. What I'm trying to get to you folks is that this was not a kind thing to do. These are rough people. These are people that have seen war. And so when they beat them and the magistrates command that they be beaten, I'm sure they had some of the most able-bodied and strong people around willing to do the job. But what did Paul and Silas do? At midnight they prayed. But then they did something else. They prayed and they sang praises. And the people heard them. Now again, remember what Paul wrote back to the Philippians. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't fret about anything. But in everything, in some things, no, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. I think some people read right over that thanksgiving and don't give it any thought. But the giving of thanks is just as important as the prayer. Now, folks, if you were Paul or Silas in that position, what would you pray for? thing first and foremost on my mind would be getting out of this place. Well, why are they there? Because they obeyed God. I'm sure they had a few moments. If Paul and Silas were like a lot of Christians I know, I'm sure they would have had a few moments to question whether Paul really had a vision to come to Macedonia. That would be the perfect place to start questioning what you saw or what you thought you saw in your dream or the vision or whatever it was. But instead what they did was keep in mind who they were, keep in mind who they were serving, which was God the Father, and to keep in mind that God said that they had authority over all the works of the devil. So they prayed and sang praises and the prisoners heard them. Now notice exactly what the Bible says next. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that everybody's bands were Chains fell off, bands were loose, stocks were opened. Tell me the last time that an earthquake has done that. Doesn't talk about damage to structures or, or buildings or anything like that. It tells us that this earthquake was directly targeting the people that were in that prison. I wonder what the prisoners heard them sing. I wonder what the prisoners heard them pray. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Folks, what would, have keep, what would keep those prisoners from running out the doors as soon as he saw they were open? They knew that this was not some ordinary earthquake. They knew that this was not some act of nature. They recognized that the place that they were in were targeted specifically because of these two guys that they heard praying and singing praises unto God. Now get in mind this is a jail. Keep in mind that this prison has some pretty rough people in it. And nobody moves when the earthquake takes place. Chains fall off, prison doors swing open, and nobody moves. Tell me what could have caused that or made that to occur if not them hearing the prayer and the praise of Paul and Silas. They knew that the prayer, uh, they knew that the earthquake was a direct response to the prayers and the praises of Paul and Silas. They recognized that Paul and Silas were in charge in some way of this thing, that God was on their side. And so instead of running out, counting it as a lucky break, everybody stays fixed in their positions to see what's going to happen next. You know, where the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, this story is good to keep in mind to realize that no matter how dark things look around us, no matter how difficult the circumstances appear to be, we've still got a God that will help us. And he's never late. So when the Philippians, some years later, read the letter that Paul writes back to them, be careful for nothing, don't be anxious or fretful about anything, be carefree instead, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I can't help but think the Philippians are going to look back to Acts chapter 16 and remember how Paul and Silas first came to them. Remember the circumstances of their ministry in the beginning stages of their ministry at least. I would just be simple enough to think that this has been reported down through the years and everybody knows and everybody keeps it fresh in their memory. And now Paul tells them to do exactly the same thing with whatever they're facing. Now let me ask you a question. Could we legitimately say that Paul and Silas praying in the middle of the prison at midnight and singing praises unto God created an atmosphere for God to move? Well, he certainly moved, didn't he? And Paul is telling the Philippian church and us since the letters were saved and that God is no respecter of persons, Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, here's how to handle things that may even look to be desperate situations in your life. Pray and sing praises unto God. Pray and sing praises unto God. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I know I use some of these same scriptures over and over and over again, but folks, these are so good and they're so true and they work in everybody's life to such a degree that we can't overlook them. We need to keep these things fresh in our minds. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be at some place, which is in Gedi. 
And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord and before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the, of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art thou not our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house." And cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Notice what the first thing Jehoshaphat does. Jehoshaphat reminds the people, everybody that can hear him pray. He reminds himself and he reminds God of the promises that God made. He reminds God of his word. And the first part of the prayer even sounds like a challenge. God, aren't you God of the earth? God, aren't you big enough to take care of these people and these things? Aren't you the one that gave us the promised land and drove out the people of the promised land from before us? Everybody except these people. You wouldn't let us invade them. You told us to stay away from them, and we did, and now look how they've come to reward us. Somebody said, and I don't know who to credit it to, but somebody said the most effective kind of prayer is the argumentative kind of prayer. Well, the Bible says, God said clearly, put me in remembrance of my word and let us plead our case together. Now, pleading your case means you making your case to God and him making his case back to you. Now, what's the purpose of that? God is pleased when we take hold of the word for ourselves and remind him of who he made us to be. Jehoshaphat is identifying, we're your people, God. We're the ones you made promises to. You said that if we came upon difficulty like we're facing now, if we came into this house and called upon you, you said you'd answer us. Folks, God seems to like that kind of prayer. He answers it. He makes good on his word. Notice they don't come whining saying, oh, we're in a mess, Lord. These people are stronger than us. They're mightier than us. We don't have a chance. Make this to be an easy thing so that they don't kill us. Maybe they could just take us captive or something. Well, they pray and say, aren't you God in heaven? And aren't we your people? And didn't you make promises to us that if we'd call upon you, you'd answer us? Notice how God responds. Well, let me go back to verse 11. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. I, folks, I think this is a key phrase. They're here to cast us out of what belongs to you. You've given it to us to inherit, but this is your possession. Folks, healing is God's possession. Jesus paid for it. Righteousness is God's possession. Jesus paid for it. It's our inheritance. It was made and provided for for us. But prosperity is what Jesus paid for too. Abundance, provision. 
These are things that belong not just to us through inheritance. They belong to the one who did them and performed the work and made the sacrifice to obtain them. These things belong to God. They'll always belong to God. They're ours because we're in him. But they're his possession. We shouldn't let sickness and disease cast us out of God's possession of healing. We shouldn't let lack and financial difficulty cast us out of God's possession of abundance. These things belong to God. When the devil attacks you and me with these things, trying to strip us of our inheritance, trying to take healing and abundance away from us, he's making an attack on God's possession. When the devil attacks us, the Bible says we belong to God too. He's making an attack on God's possession. We need to know that and act accordingly. Behold how I say they reward us to cast us out of thy possession which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are on thee. You may not know everything that you're supposed to do, but you keep your eyes on God and he'll show you. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Notice their fast. Notice their seeking of the Lord. Notice putting God first. Ministering to them. Now the Bible doesn't say anything about them singing or ministering to the Lord yet. It becomes a part of their deliverance. But these are all factors and all part of ministering to the Lord. Putting everything else out and putting God first. You can see from Jehoshaphat's first statements, first part of this prayer. You can see what he thinks of God. You can see the position that he's coming from. Could it be that the rest of the children of Judah were doing the same thing? I think that's highly possible. I think that's probable. Jehoshaphat doesn't just remember that God's the creator of the heavens and the earth when he starts praying. He knows that when he's been seeking him. He knows that when he proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. That's the reason they're seeking after God is because they know who he is. They know the promises that he's made to them. They know the commitment that he has through Abraham's covenant with the people of Israel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel in the midst of the congregation, and he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. Better get ready because tomorrow's going to be a tough day. Well, he says, Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Folks, if you know you got God on your side, there is no desperate moment. When you know God is with you, there's nothing to enter into desperation about. Sure, things may look from the natural standpoint like it's over. Things may look from a natural standpoint like it's too late to do anything or make anything work. But if God's with you, it's never too late. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go you out against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. I know that most of us, perhaps, would rather God do our fighting for us than we'll just stay at home. 
But God likes for you and me to face his enemy. God knows what he will do for you. He knows what he's already done for you. He knows what equipment, spiritual equipment and tools we've been given. Weapons of warfare that aren't carnal but mighty through God. In other words, he knows we have everything that we'll ever need to defeat the devil and the devil operating through people. So he likes us to go face-to-face with the ones that the enemy is using. He sees that as an opportunity to show himself strong on our behalf. Most of us would like to avoid the fight altogether or even avoid the confrontation. But it's those times where we go out and face our enemies. Those are the places where God shows himself strong. God likes that part of the battle, even though we might not. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Second time he said it. First was in verse 15, be not afraid nor dismayed. By reason of this great multitude, the battle is not yours, it's God. Here in verse 17, fear not nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his face, his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Well, they must believe what's been said. You don't see any record where they said, well, we'll believe it when we see it. They fall down and worship the Lord. Now, folks, I need you to realize, now they're giving thanks. They've received the word of God, and now they're giving thanks. Just like with Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi, they prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. The people may not have known specifically in the first part of the, of the chapter about praising and thanking God. I'm sure they had the, the battle and the, the enemy and the armies that are facing them first and foremost on their mind. I, I guess we all would. But they went and looked toward God first. They sought after him. They set themselves apart through fasting. And when the word of the Lord came, then they began worshiping him for his promise. But that's all it is. It's just a promise. It hadn't been fulfilled yet and wouldn't be until the next day. But they're not waiting till the end of the battle to praise him or minister to him. They start worshiping for their deliverance even before it occurred. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Here's Thanksgiving. Now, folks, like I said, the battle hadn't yet been won. So as far as they're concerned, their enemy is just as strong as as he was when they started praying. There are just as many of them out there as they were earlier. But they've got a promise from God now. So they begin to thank him before they see the answer. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. What evidence is there going to be? What evidence, evidence can there be to show that they believe God? It was a great time yesterday in the congregation and in the temple 
when the Spirit of the Lord came from Jehaziel or through Jehaziel. That was a wonderful thing, and everybody rejoiced, but now it's the next day. There's not the same atmosphere as there was in the temple. There's not the same presence of the Spirit of God as there was when the prophet began to speak. Jehoshaphat knows that faith is an important ingredient, so he tells the people, encourages them, implores them, believe the Lord. Believe that God is who we know him to be. Believe what he said through the prophet. Verse 21, and when he had consulted with the people, after he's encouraging the people to believe, he then appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness. And as they went out before the army, that means in front of the army, and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. He put the praisers out front. Now, that's not the place you'd want the choir to be normally. The choir doesn't usually make the best fighters. But the fact that they're out front shows their trust in God, shows their belief in what God said he would do. So they began to sing into praise. Verse 22, and when they began to sing into praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness and looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. That means the last two guys standing killed each other at the same minute. They each took a swing at each other with the swords or however they were fighting, and both of them went down. There's not one person left. Behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off of themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. I want you to consider something, folks. The Bible doesn't say it, but I just want you to use good sense, common sense here. It could very well be that when they appointed, when Jehoshaphat appointed the singers to sing and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It could very well be that at that moment, that's when the fighting started on the other side of the hill or the valley or wherever they were. In other words, it's very possible, probable in my thinking, that the battle was taking place while they were singing. Their simple act of faith set the workings of God in motion. Folks, if we really believe God will do or has done what he's promised, what is there left for us to do except thank him for it? Now, if we're of the mindset we still have to make it happen, we've got to confess enough. We've got to sing enough. We've got to show God that we're good enough, at least at this moment, for whatever we want. That's not trusting him. But when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments. 
When I read this story, it always reminds me of Isaiah 41. Let me read this to you, Isaiah 41, verse 10. This sounds a lot like what happened in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God to the people. He says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Have you ever noticed God never shows up in any way whatsoever in talking about fear other than not to fear? He never shows up and tells anybody they have good reason to be afraid. Even though the circumstances clearly show that they might have good reason to be afraid. But being on God's side changes everything, folks. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. The word dismayed has several different meanings. Can be translated in several different ways. But the root word of this word dismayed means to be broken down by looking at things on the outside. To gaze or to see things that cause you to be broken down or bewildered. So he said, be not dismayed. Don't worry about what you see. For I am thy God. Some people would say, yeah, but I feel so weak. I will strengthen thee. The word strengthen means to make firm or steadfast, to harden or to fortify. I will strengthen thee. Some people would say, yeah, but I just feel so helpless. Well, God said, I will help thee. Others will say, yeah, but I feel like I'm going under. God said, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Folks, they only had the promise of righteousness. We've got the real thing. And even in the Old Testament occurrences, which the Bible tells us are meant to be examples for us, types and shadows. Under the Old Covenant, which the Bible says wasn't as good as the one we have now. If God would do these things for his servants, what do you think he'll do for his sons and his daughters? His children, real children, real family. There's not anything that we're facing today, not anything that we'll ever face that's greater than what God's already done for us and in us. There's nothing that will ever occur or ever could happen that's greater than the promise of God to be with us, to help us, to strengthen us, to hold us up because we've been made righteous, not through our own actions, but through the precious blood of Jesus. Folks, when you're standing on his word, for you to go down, the word would have to fail. For you to go under, the word would have to go under. And that can never happen. That can never happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your promises. Thank you that you are faithful to watch over your word to perform it. Lord, you know these days that we live in. You know the situations and the circumstances that we're facing. You know how the enemy attacks us, how he brings sickness to us to cast us out of your possession of healing, 
how he tries to bring lack to us to cast us out of your possession of abundance. How he brings temptation to us to cast us out of the knowledge that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And because you are with us, you help us, you strengthen us, you uphold us through righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that because we're holding on to you, we cannot go down. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to each create an atmosphere of the, for the Holy Ghost to speak and to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Say this with me. For the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. There's something about that phrase, folks. There's something about that phrase. It's the one that in almost in every situation, every victory that Israel won, it's the phrase they use. For the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. It still works today. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.